Hey, everybody, and welcome to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Yeah, and if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, to those who have listened before, welcome back uh, to this bi-weekly podcast uh, Father Michael and I are doing. Uh, you can find us at anchor.fm forward slash on the battlefield. You can also find us at Facebook and Instagram at On the Battlefield Podcast. Please feel free to check into either one of those sites, ask questions, leave concerns, give us ideas for new content. It really is for you that we are doing this podcast. The Lord has given us the strength and the, and the desire to do it, and we want to do it to his glory and for the benefit of his people and his church. And thank you to everyone who has left comments in the past, people who have given us feedback. It's great to hear what God is doing in your lives through us, his unworthy servants. Hey, Father Michael, uh, what's going on, man? Uh, today we're going to talk about addiction. Uh, there's all sorts of different addictions here in our world. Uh, we're more aware of them now more than ever with psychology the way that it is. But you have your classical drug addictions, alcohol addictions, but we're also seeing addictions with technology. Um, technology is really, really ramping up the addiction to pornography in the world, a multi-billion dollar a year industry. Uh, what are your thoughts on it, man? So, yeah. So one of the things that I think we run into problems when we're talking about addiction is we have run at a couple of different tacks that uh, are extremes and by being extremes are reductionist, uh, meaning, right, that it takes what is a very complex topic, what is a very complex subject, and it reduces it to a couple of bits of uh, a, a very well-defined and easily answerable matter. And that's, that, that's a real temptation that we all fall into because we want to make something comprehensible. We want to wrap our minds around what we're looking at. And when it comes to the topic of addiction, you're looking at the, the, it's a complex scenario where you're looking at someone that you care about, someone that you know, someone who's, who, with whom, you may be very well acquainted with their uh, their intellectual prowess, their professional skills, uh, their moral rectitude in every other facet of their life. And then you see in this one really strong fundamental area a flaw that can undercut everything else. Um, and from the logical standpoint, you'd say, well, you know, if you uh, if you know that you have, say, an addiction to alcohol, uh, and it's ruining your life. Well, just stop. Well, if it was that easy, you, there would be no alcoholics ruining their lives stories. The, those stories would be few and far in between. There'd be no need for AA or the 12 steps. So it, it becomes a maddening process because you're looking at something that's not logical and something that's not driven by a consistent logic-based framework. So what happens is in order to make sense of it, we want to reduce it. And in reducing it, you do the whole topic a disservice. So what, what do I mean by reduction? And why do I say that we've gone in two very different yet equally reductionist tendencies? So there is the, uh, there's on the one hand, like on the one end of the spectrum, you, where you reduce it to simple moral failure. And this is your shame-based approach. This is your failure-based approach. So this is the one where, you know, people are coming at the alcoholic as a, or the addict or whatever, as uh, just a complete derelict and they're good for nothing. And they're, they need to either get, you know, get shaped up or ship out and definitely deserve to get beat up on the way there. Um, and, and unfortunately, we saw that this happened a lot throughout history. The quote-unquote tough love approach ha has been tried amply. When you look at the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, uh, the actual program of AA is really only the first – I'm going to botch it, but I believe it's like the first 165 pages 
and it's a, like a 500-page book. The rest of it is all stories. The rest of it is all stories of men and women um, of various walks of life. I mean, various walks of life, housewives and engineers and salesmen and priests and doctors and you name it, man, um, and how they got sober. And all of them had the run in with that tough love approach, and it didn't work for any of them. The other end of the spectrum, the other extreme, so that that's a reductionist, right? That's 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 one kind of reduction because you're reducing it to moral failure, as opposed to looking at it as uh, as uh, multifaceted. You're saying, well, clearly you don't love your family, or clearly you don't value your life. Oh no, the the addict really does love their family and value their life. It's that they've got something that is beyond their strength alone to beat, uh, but it's the alone is the, is the key word here. And then you've got the other extreme, which is also reductionist to where we're so compassionate. Uh, we're so compassionate and we're so treating it as such a disease that any, any portion of self agency is abrogated. And the, and that's a reductionist too, because you're looking at this and saying, Oh, well, you know, you're just sick. Well, if the person in question is just sick and they can't and they have no hope of being anything other than just sick well that's a pretty hopeless scenario like what's the impetus to get sober and what's the likelihood of it um if if really what you are is just sick and nothing else then let's just pack it in and call it a day and, and give up and that's not helpful either you know so each of these reductionist tendencies are not helpful, but what they do is they allow us to wrap our minds around uh, a very complex problem. And it also allows the one doing the reducing to set themselves in a safe position to it. You're sick, I'm not sick. You're a moral failure, I'm upright. You see that that's that that's and this, that's what we have to look at when we're when we're trying to help people is very often our own responses and very often our own tacts hide sort of a subconscious bias ourselves where we are trying to get ourselves to a place of safety because every crisis of our neighbor opens up the question of whether or not I too am vulnerable to that crisis. And that's why when people that's that's really the only reason why people get scandalized when they find someone that they uh, hold in respect is uh, is an addict, a recovering addict. They get scandalized. Why? Well, because if that person can be an addict, then anybody could be an addict. I could be an addict. I, you know, like it's it creates a vulnerability on the part of the listener. And. So we try to get to a safe place. Um, so what I would say, right? What, so my thoughts on that is that we need to avoid the reductionism, is that we need to look at addiction for what it is, which is it is a an incredibly complex interplay of various factors. There's the biochemical factors where you're talking about someone uh, who, for a variety of reasons, is really addicted to the dopamine dump that occurs when they get their drink or their drug of choice or their uh, their habit habitual behavior of choice and it becomes so hardwired that the brain which is a huge junkie just has to keep going after that fix and there's sociological factors and there's trauma factors um, you know battle PTSD for instance re reconfigures the topography of the brain so that you are, you're you're left dealing with an altered physiology, not just a psychology. Um, there is a moral component, right? Like the person deciding to get sober has to make spiritual, sober, moral decisions to do so, to let go of resentments and and, and anger. And I mean, like there there is a moral component to it. Uh, at, at any one of these turns. If you take one aspect and you absolutize it, the whole thing falls apart. So you have to, that's why you can't look at it in generalities. You can't look at it reductionistically. And you, you've really got to look at it with the eyes towards um, if this person I loved were healthy, what would that look like? Um, what does that mean? And 
I, I just so so I think that I think the danger to reductionism is is a real big problem when it comes to having a profitable discussion about this topic. Yeah, but what does that look like? I mean, what does what would I mean? You said what would my loved one look like if they were healthy? That asks that begs an awful lot of questions, right? I mean, what is healthy? What is not healthy? Am I healthy? Uh, how unhealthy are they? Why are they so unhealthy? How did they get so unhealthy? Why do they think that they're finding, what is it that they're finding in this addiction that is fueling it? And how in the world do we bail ourselves out of this sinking ship, especially if there's somebody involved in the addiction with you, a loved one? I mean, so often, uh, in my experience, I've seen addicts just kind of going it alone. I mean, you end up you end up on the street, you end up under a bridge, you end up God God knows where or why, living in cars, whatever. But you end up in very very lonely state, and um, it begs a lot of questions. I do agree with you that. Uh, reductionism does not really help. I mean, it helps us wrap our simple and feeble minds around a very complex issue. It does often allow me to morally uh, remove myself from the situation because you are the moral reprobate, reprobate and I am the morally your superior. But gosh, even, even there, uh, we see ourselves on a very complicated and complex battlefield wrought and fraught with with danger and um good lord this this idea of addiction is very frightening uh, i've seen an awful lot of it and it's so unique to each individual it's very hard to navigate so i think maybe we could spend some time um trying to remove ourselves from this kind of the complexities of it and talk about things that are actually um, overarching and that that apply to everyone. What do you think? Well, so I think one of the things we have, what makes it frightening, and we need to say this because this goes to the heart of all of the stories that we tell in the spiritual life. Um, all of the stories, when you look at all the stories about creation that come from the ancient world, they all start with chaos. Um, so like in Genesis, where the spirit hovers over the face of the deep. In the, in the ancient world, the, the ocean, the deep, that, that's a symbol for chaos. That's what that is. That's, that's, that's chaos. That's the unknown. And, and if you're, I mean, even to this day, right, like we actually know more about the surface of some other planets than what's at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, that makes it a very frightening place. There are things down there that, um, I, I mean, may as well be from another world. I mean, we, like we, 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 you know, the, the underwater discoveries are just, they're, they're mind boggling, you know, but in order to do that, you have to confront the chaos, which is waves that you can't control and ocean currents and riptides. And I mean, there, it's, it's, it's no wonder that the ocean is an ancient symbol for chaos. Um, and that's what makes addiction so terrifying is because it's chaos, is that someone you know, and someone who uh, has intellectual acumen, you know, suddenly this substance can make them unpredictable and it can make them um, unmanageable and it can make them unreasonable or violent or, or an untrustworthy and a, a trustworthy person can become untrustworthy. And if, if, again, that's the very definition of chaos, we, we can't, we don't know where we stand at any given moment. Um, and that's, that's, that's the world that addiction creates. So sobriety really looks like, uh, sobriety really looks like encountering the chaos and then, you know, saying, and then creating order out of it. So like it's, so to go back to that motif in Genesis, right? What's really fascinating about the, uh, about the Christian story, about the, the story in scripture is that in every other ancient telling of the primordial battle with chaos, there's a war, and it could go in either direction. 
um, you know, in the Babylonian story, uh, Marduk has to slay the uh, the the dragon of chaos, Tiamat. Um, and in and um, the name of it is escaping me, but they're in their uh, in in the Egyptian mythology, there is a uh, there is a serpent of chaos that Ra must battle every night. Well, in the Genesis account, in the story of Genesis, and in Holy Scripture, you have chaos present, but there's no battle because there's not even a fight. The God who's present there is so sovereign, the Holy Spirit, that He hovers over the face of the deep, and He simply says. Let there be light. Let the waters above go above, the waters below below. Let dry land appear. He's so sovereign, there's no opportunity to, for a fight to occur. I mean, and look at that picture. Like, that's a real strong, solid picture of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's so sovereign that when he shows up on the scene, there's not even the possibility of a fight. You go over there. You go over there. This pops up. We're doing daytime now. Um, so what does that have to do with addictions. Well, that that's also has a lot to do with how we manage the chaos. See, if we if we stay mired in it, if we stay engaged in it, if you stay entangled and you're fighting it and you're going, all right, we're going to work down from 10 drinks to two drinks and this and that, uh, you're, you're locked in a battle that you may or may not win. And uh, truth be told, addicts who try to win it alone don't do well and their families don't do well. Whereas when you get sober, when you when you truly set it aside, part of the reason that you you really do go cold turkey, part of the reason you really do stop altogether and go to total abstinence, it is because you know that the only way to actually win that battle is for it not to begin. The, the only way for the the for an alcoholic, the only way for the alcohol to not win today is just not to enter your bloodstream. Like if you can keep it out, there's no fight. And, and so it's a matter of like, all right, are we being sovereign over this chaos or not? And if we are, then, okay, you go over there. You have no place here. You know, the, 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 the light rules over here. The dark is over there and we're going to separate them. And you have day and night, the waters above and the waters below. I mean, you have to set some very clear, concise boundaries. Bringing order out of chaos starts with boundaries. And that's the very first thing that we see occur in Genesis. You start to say, here's the delineations for light, for dark, for dry land, for the ocean, for mountains. And those tent posts, those, those lines of demarcation allow form to take shape where it simply didn't otherwise exist. So when you're dealing with an addict and it's someone you love, you've got to look at them and get them to engage that process. You got to convince them that it is worth the hard work to engage that process. Because if that that's really the linchpin, it's not that they can't stop drinking. They can. Um, it's will they. Will they do the hard work that goes with it? And then in the doing that, you've got to ask some really uncomfortable questions. And yeah, you got, do. Yeah, you've got to you've got to look at some really bad places about yourself and confront a lot of failure and if and only if you're willing to do that um can you get somewhere but if you are if you are then you can start setting those lines of demarcation but kind of like creation it's not enough to just say the darkness is over there and the light's over here you know we got to start filling it with things and that's why like when you know when you get talk to people in recovery very quickly uh, the landscape starts to, you know, it, the landscape gets filled with uh, reading and reading the literature and meetings and talks and other people in recovery and grabbing coffee after the your home group meeting and all this other stuff. You start to fill out this new world that's been created out of the chaos of the addiction. Uh, but if you leave it um, if you leave it tohu vavohu, to borrow language from Genesis, you know, if you leave it formless and void, then the chaos can creep back in. So you have to fill it. Yeah, you you do have to fill it with something. But th this is th this is all language from AA, um, NA, from from the drug and alcohol world, which 
a lot of us do or have struggled with at some point in our lives. I mean, these this sort of addiction is um, a lot more prevalent and common than I think most people would like to uh, suppose that it is. Uh, there are an awful lot of people out there with alcohol problem uh, that you wouldn't even notice uh, in in daily life, but. Yeah, we can we can get to that point of recognition and undoing the chaos in our life if we recognize it and have a place uh, to move toward. But what what about these more modern uh, addictions uh, that we see around us that that people have that are either so stealth that knowing that someone is struggling with it you would never know, or it's so socially and culturally acceptable that it's not even viewed as an addiction. For example, uh, we mentioned it toward the beginning of the podcast, but um, pornography, it's prolific. Uh, you could sit at your house with an iPhone or any any sort of cell phone or tablet or computer in your lap and have access to untold hours and images of of whatever you want and nobody knows nobody needs to know um i remember when we were in seminary uh there was a priest that came and he was talking to us about uh, sexual addictions and some of the information that he had was really startling they had done uh, a sample from excuse me they had done a, a sample from hotels throughout the country who had large uh gatherings of religious leaders come uh, for events and for whatever, and the amount of pornography being watched in the hotels during these religious conferences went up by by huge margins. Um, So so you have that, and then, then you've also got Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Uh, hours and hours and hours, YouTube, hours and hours of, of my time going out the window because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel good to get that notification. It makes me feel good to get that email uh, message. It makes me feel good to see the new picture of my my cousin with the baby. So we get these dopamine hits either from cracking the Budweiser or we, we get it from uh, a Facebook post or we get it from uh, seeing uh, lewd images on on our devices, but I think I have an answer to this question, at least to some degree, without minimizing it too much. But I'm curious to see what you have to say. Uh, what, what's the underlying common thread between all of these sorts of addiction that some of us might not recognize uh, at first? Well, one of the things you got to understand in the community, in the recovery communities is there's bleed over. Um, You know, so like if you went to an inpatient treatment for addiction, you'd find guys, uh, whether they're there for, whether they're for cocaine or heroin or alcohol or whatever, they're all in the same program because the substance is really it's a it's a secondary detail it's not even the most important detail it really isn't um the problem is the same so and that that's also true when you're looking at technology addiction uh pornography addiction all these kinds of things that become to use the language once again of the scripture of fathers that become a pathos a passion that invades our lives and then suddenly you know is unruly and making our lives unmanageable um the underlying factor with all of it is isolation you see that's that's the fundamental problem the fundamental problem is isolation the fundamental problem is you don't know how to deal with life you don't know your rest uh, to use the language of the programs once again you're restless irritable discontent and you don't know how to deal with it so you isolate and you and the addict can isolate and be in, in company with other people so the the substance creates a bubble to where you're, you know, you're having this altered experience. You're in a bubble separated from everyone else. Um, when you're looking at pornography, I mean, there, I mean, there's isolation, right? Uh, because you've got to get private to view the material. But it's also, it's very much, it, it's, it's anti-communal. 
you know, right? It's, it's, you, it's, you're having a fantasy with a digital image that you also know is completely fake is it's, it's staged. I mean, not that there aren't real people, there are real people involved, but it's, it's, it's staged, right? It's not like these are two people who really are just infatuated with each other. No, it's like you have, you have paid individuals doing things they're paid to do. The whole thing is a ruse. You know that. So you're, but to, so you isolate with the lie. And what, what they found is that the more that is imbibed mentally, the more the one ensnared by it um, disconnects from the actual people in their lives. And that's the common thread with all addiction. Whether it's a gambling addiction, whether it's a hoarding addiction, whether it's drinking or drugs or pornography, whatever it is, you'll notice that suddenly every other aspect of the uh, of the person's life becomes relativized, and so that they can set at a premium satisfying the addiction. So isolation is the common thread, and that's why the recovery communities emphasize uh, community so much, you know, collecting phone numbers, going to meetings, meeting these people, having a sponsor, because it's a disease of isolation. And it, the, in community, there's, there, there's not an isolated solution. There is a communal solution. There's a community solution, but you will not find a solution in isolation, only the problem. And that's, and that's actually what sin does, right? When you read through, I'm, I'm sticking in Genesis here. When you, when you, when you read through the narrative in Genesis, what is the result? Of, what is the result of sin? Well, man, mankind becomes isolated from God. Men and women become isolated from each other. Humankind becomes isolated from the natural world. They're kicked out of paradise. So they're isolated from their home. I mean, Right. That's what we call the devil, diavolos, the one who tears apart, the one who rends asunder. Diavolo, to throw between, to rend asunder. So, I mean, you're, you're if you, so that, that's why speaking about it from an Orthodox perspective is, is, is helpful. Because truthfully, you're speaking the same language, whether it's recovery or repentance. This is a disease of isolation. It's progressive and it's fatal, but there's a cure. There is a solution. If you will have it, but half measures avail us nothing. We don't halfway do repentance, and we can't halfway do sobriety. And that's that's where the person's volition comes into play. Are they on board or not? Yeah, you have to be on board with the cure. Um, I like how you came at that. Nice. Um, I I think we both would have gotten to the same place just with very different language. Um, in my context, having seen uh, a lot of alcoholics in my life and uh, a fair share of people that I, I knew growing up, either being dead or addicted to drugs and, and alcohol, even still today, um, it's very clearly uh, a, a very insidious spiritual illness that, that leads people to that point. And and every every single spiritual illness I've ever seen in my life does exactly what you were just talking about. And that is the wolf coming into the pack and trying to to single out a sheep. Or if you've ever seen on on television uh, the the videos of the the sea creatures where uh, the dolphins will get a huge school of fish all balled up and they will they'll dart into the the pod members from the dolphin pod will shoot into the uh, fish ball and separate a few fish to eat and they'll just do that over and over and over and over again until that entire fish ball is nearly gone but the result is the same come in attack separate remove destroy these are the tactics of our ancient enemy, and I'll be they work really, really well. And I don't like it because, I mean, this is why the church has confession. 
We, we have to be in communion. Our God is a communal God. Uh, and for uh, in order for us to be in communion with him and with each other, we need to make ourselves vulnerable one to another and admit that we're struggling. Um, how many times in your life or my own, even, even our relationship, if we allowed ourselves just to be the tough guy and be like, hey, man, I got this. I'm good. I'm good. And then I'm not so good. And it was because we, we thought we had it and we stopped being vulnerable and we get left out in the dark, out in the cold. And we get, as, they, as my grandfather used to say, we get it. We get, we get eaten up. And um, this, is, this is the human condition. So whether your addiction is your cell phone, your computer, uh, the wine bottle, a beer bottle, a whiskey bottle, uh, pornography, gambling, you name it. At the end of the day, the, the undertow is the devil wants you by yourself, feeling alone, so he can wreck you. Um, I think we've said this on this program before, but you, you nicely alluded to the Diavolos, to, to tear asunder. The other names that uh, were given to Satan were the deceiver and the accuser. So he, he, he pulls us out of the, he pulls us out, he gets us alone, he deceives us. And instead of returning to communion, we accept the, the lie and we accept the accusation that we are morally reprobate that we are morally deficient and that we would be better off out of communion lest anyone find out just how awful and evil we are. And in so doing, we've bought the deception once again. Yeah. And so that's, so I would agree with that, right? That's, that's really the main feature. The, the phenomenology of it, what is, how, how the individual is, getting altered or getting their fix is really secondary. It's the isolation. It's the belief that reconciliation is not possible and that, that it's despair. I, I mean, honestly, you know, the, uh, if you talk to people in recovery, that, that battle cry of, I've got this, I, I can figure it out. I'm okay. Like that, that everybody has that in common. You should, everybody should, Take some time, sit with people in recovery, and you're going to learn a couple of things. And namely, it's such a cookie-cutter disease and it's such a cookie-cutter affliction that it does the same thing in everyone's life. You feel like you're terminally unique, and you quickly have to come to grips with the fact that you're not. That terminal uniqueness is another type of isolation. It's like, oh, well, yeah. No, no, no. You may have, you may have heard about problems, but your problems aren't like my problems. Right. And the fact that my problems are so special and so unique means that even though drinking at 9 a.m. might not be a good idea, if you had my problems, you do it, too. Right. Like, see, that terminal specialness, it gives us a sense of entitlement. So like um, I, like the way the way people in recovery will phrase it, they'll say that they're uh, they are egomaniacs with an inferiority complex. Right. Like you have to feel one down, but at the same time, it's very much a me-focused affliction. And then, and that's isolation. Being focused on myself is isolation because all I can see is my own needs and not yours. And that's why the reconciliation, the, the cure occurs in community where I stop focusing on myself and start focusing on service. That's why sponsors will always tell their sponsees when they're having a hard time, like you need to do more service work. You need to, and service work could be anything. It can be, you know, carrying groceries, carrying old ladies' groceries out to the car, helping at a soup kitchen, uh, you know, sweeping your, you know, or like in a in an area like if you had snow, like um, you know, snow blowing your neighbor's uh, walkways just because, you know, like service work could be anything, but anything that gets you to stop focusing on you and start focusing on service to others. And this should sound very, very Christian, really. I mean, because that, that this is once again, what sin does. Sin gets us focused on ourselves. Sin is the prodigal while he's still mired in the mud and the slop, you know? And, and, and if he had continued in the mentality that sin left him, he could have simply said, you know, I'm going to go to the God of my fathers and tell 
the most high, the creator and king of the universe that I repent and turn my life around. Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough to just go to God? Why do I need anyone else? I don't need anyone between God and me. The problem is your sins didn't just affect God. If it was only between you and God, that'd be great, but it wasn't. Um, and to be perfectly honest, to be perfectly frank, that sort of Jesus and me culture is isolating. It's isolationist. Why? I don't need you. I don't need your church. I don't need your people. I don't need the body of Christ. I just need Jesus. I don't need anyone else. Sounds really good till you realize that you're isolated, till you realize that it's isolation. It's just you and Jesus, my God. And, and, and that really appears nowhere in Scripture. That appears nowhere in Scripture. The, uh, in, second, in Second Peter, Peter calls the body of Christ, the church, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Paul says that we are Christ's body and his members eternally. Like the idea is communal. We are community. That is, we are a body. We are an organism. Um, so, so the, the prodigal, when he's looking at the results of that sin, if he doesn't say, I must, you know, I need to repent. He comes to himself. If he doesn't say, I have sinned before heaven and before you, he doesn't get back home. He has to do that. He has to look and say, I've sinned before heaven and Father, I've sinned before you. Vertical and horizontal. Uh, and, and that's why when you're looking at, that's why you get that, that, um, that famous, I think it's the ninth step, I believe, uh, of uh, of the tw famous twelve steps, where uh, you know every, every, they're making amends. You know, everyone gets that phone call from someone they haven't spoken to in ten years because they're doing step work with their sponsor and they want to make things right. It's actually not that simple, but there's that idea that like you have to really come to terms with what you did didn't just affect you, and it wasn't just between you and God either. It was between you and a whole lot of lives. Uh, what's interesting in the ninth step, what it says is we became willing to make direct amends where possible, except when doing so would harm ourselves or others. So it's the willingness, once again, the willingness to go to the Father, the willingness to say, I've sinned before you too. Um, but there's times where people go to do a ninth step and the sponsor says, yeah, it would not be right for you to actually confront this head on. So let's journal about it. Let's write it out. Let's do it by proxy. Um, you know, some, sometimes it's like you, sometimes, sometimes if you're opening a can of worms and misery for someone else, just so that you can get your conscience assuaged, it's incredibly selfish. And that, that, well, that's the way the recovery community sees it. Right. So, um, so it's like, well, you know, why are you burdening this person? If you're putting, if you're putting the weight of knowledge on them, it should be because it's going to be helpful, not harmful. So like that, that's, you know, so that, so it, that's why in doing this work, you, you need a sponsor, you need someone who's, who's done it right. And, and who can guide you. But just like the prodigal, I say, no, sin before heaven and before you, because the temptation to just, just go, just go to God and be like, okay, we're done. I'm sorry. I'm turning my life around. Well, that's isolationist. I don't really have to face the consequences of my action. Repentance says, no, we're going to face this head on and we're going to go home and we're going to talk to dad and we're going to see that older brother who hates me. And we're going to see the community that I walked out from. I, you know, repentance faces it head on. And that's the way recovery is too. And that's a scary thing. Uh, and what both the church and the recovery community claim uh, and, and purport is that the individual doesn't have to do it alone. You know, the, when you're, when, for, for the recovering addict, you've got the sponsor and the broader community uh, built up around them in recovery. And in the church, you should have your spiritual father and your other spiritual brothers and sisters that are supporting you. So it's, it's, is dual thing. It's like, it's communal. So you have to face it, but you don't have to face it alone. It's a disease of isolation. So that is really, you know, you're, you're reminding me of, of something that I've found myself preaching on 
uh, over the past couple of months. And I found it in the idea of, oddly enough, how we started in Genesis and chaos, that that the chaos that came into the came that was extant, it looks like it was already existing when the spirit came and hovered over it. And and we see this chaos persisting in in creation. And then then we see what looks like rampant chaos with the flood. But if we look at the flood from another perspective, the the flood came, yes, it was chaotic, yes. But God then coming back into the world promises not to do it again. Not because he was so repentant, I don't think, but as a precursor of his grace that he was showing us that he was not going to be so absent, that he was going to come further into the world, that he was going to involve himself more so that we wouldn't go that direction again. So that level of sin, that level of just heinous, awful sin wouldn't come into the world again quite so strongly or soon. And then then we see the Lord Jesus descend into the chaos of the Jordan River, if you will, and come out and conquer death. And then we see again the Christians being baptized. And through that baptism and the giving of the chrism in, in, in our chrismation, if we're converts or the chrism offered to uh, to new bap- baptize those being newly baptized, we see that the Holy Spirit now is coming down completely, condescending entirely into the chaos of our lives, and He is empowering the undoing of the chaos. He empowers the undoing of the addiction. He empowers the divine communion in all that we do, and. What a what a phenomenal grace! What a phenomenal gift! But also at the same time, what a what an incredible opportunity, in a negative and pejorative sense, that we have to blaspheme him with our lives and how we live. Are we the prodigal living in the pigsty with the Holy Spirit sitting next to us, or are we moving towards sanctity? and allowing him by his grace to overcome the vast amounts of chaos and addiction that are in our lives because we're spiritually weak, we're spiritually sick, and we are trying to remove ourselves constantly from communion, but he's always there drawing us toward communion with Jesus Christ our Lord and with the church. Yeah, so I yeah, so that's you know, that's a really that's a really great takeoff point. It's like, where are we in it? And I think, I think that for the average Joe, the, the other thing I, I don't want to do, because this is a big temptation. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it can be tempting to reduce addictions. And then by doing that, to take the teeth out of it. Um, you know, like you probably heard people say things like, oh, I'm so OCD. I like to have all of my pillows facing up or whatever. And the reality is they're not OCD. Like that's a that's a diagnosable psychiatric condition and they don't have it. Um, oh, that's just my ADHD acting up. I've got such a tour to short attention span. No, it probably isn't because you don't have ADHD. You, you, you know, that is a diagnosable psychiatric condition. And you probably don't have it. Um, people have it. And, you know, most of the time, folks throw these words around and, and, it's, and it, it, it throws them around in a cheap way. So we, we get into the danger of reducing addictions like that and saying, oh, well, you know, we're all addicted to something. And that's kind of true to a degree, but it's, uh, it, it's not to a degree. Like it's, it's true insofar as we all have – uh, we all have unmanageable habits that will destroy our lives in this world and the next that make our lives unmanageable. Like that's what pa- that's what bathi are, passion, sins. That's what they are. They make our lives unmanageable. They will destroy us in this world and the next. That's if we let them. Um, and they're they're older and smarter than we are. 
and they can be overcome in community, but not in isolation. So to a degree, right? But the, the particular battle that someone has crossed the threshold to addiction faces is also different than just the everyday. So it's, it's good for us to look at it. It's good for us to know, all right, um, here I am. I've got my problems. You've got your problems. And, you know, me, someone, you know, one person's problems might look such a certain way that, you know, they really can't have wine with dinner ever. Like that's just off the menu from here on out. Um, and that may look different than someone else's struggle who maybe theirs is just keeping their temper in check. But if you want to see what holds that kind of sway over you, because that's the thing, if we, if we see that, if we know that it's different and we know that it happens, um, we also know that if someone is struggling and repenting and putting their life back together, the Christian thing to do is to be all manner of supportive. This is why Paul says in Galatians, St. Paul says, if any of you is caught in a trespass, let those who are spiritual restore him with a spirit of gentleness, taking heed to themselves, lest you too be tempted. So that's, 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 the, that's, that's the injunction. It's like, hey, take care of this person, do it gently and watch out for yourself because your turn could be next. And maybe it doesn't look like, maybe it's not heroin for you, but guess what? Your fall can still be pretty hard. Um, so that's, that, that's where the, that's where the tempering comes in, where we look and say, you know what? My problems look this way. Your problems look that way. Um, but let's do the work to support each other to getting a proper Christwood orientation a proper Christian orientation, and then use those lessons to go and help others struggling likewise. Um, you know, that's the 12th of the 12 steps to take, uh, to take the message of sobriety to those who are also suffering. Well, I mean, that's, that should be the, and that's the one that makes it all work. And that should be the tact of every repentant sinner. It's like, yeah, you know, I overcame a struggle with pornography or overcame a struggle with temper or um, overcame gluttony and a sugar and a bad sugar habit, you know. Um, and by the way, that that's I mean, that may be socially acceptable, but let's face it, man. You can you can wreck your health with some things that you buy at the grocery store and you, you wreck your health and put your family into medical debt and rob your children of a lot of good years with you. I mean, like let's be honest, it may you you may you may or may not be addicted to the Oreos, but what you talking about, Willis? Yeah, but but on the other hand, right? Like if it's if it's making your life unmanageable and destroying your world, then it's still a problem. And if we've both got a deadly problem in front of us, the only Christian thing to do is say, all right, if you want to fight, I'm shoulder to shoulder with you. I'm, you know, knee deep, you know, and we'll go at it. We'll go together, you know, and I'm going to carry you down. And who knows, you may have to carry me back, but we're going together. And that, that's, that's the Christian tech. That's, that's how we should be as a church. Um, the Antiochian church up the road from me is a very interesting place. Uh, and they, uh, they, they were, they didn't start as an Orthodox church. They were one of those churches back in the eighties where the congregation in mass joined the Orthodox church. Um, they were part of that, but they actually started as a recovery meeting. Like before they became a Protestant church, they were a recovery meeting that met at this guy's property and it was alcoholics meeting and stuff. It wasn't an AA meeting, but it was a recovery group. And then that turned into a parish, some kind of Protestant parish. And then the whole parish entered the Orthodox Church. And then you go today, and it's one of the most wonderful uh, Orthodox churches in the area. But that that founding mentality of helping the man at rock bottom is part of their culture. Well, it really should be part of all of our culture. Because if we give isolation and the devil a chance we'll all end up at some awful rock bottom. And when it's our turn to be there, we're going to want a hand up. I can give you a hand out. 
I'm not so sure I'm going to crawl down into the hole with you. I mean, that that doesn't sound appealing at all. I mean, right? I, I don't, I mean, and that's an interesting thing in and of itself. I mean, I have to admit, I have to admit because I don't particularly want to take responsibility for my own sins. I do not particularly want to take responsibility for how my actions affect other people. I do not want to take responsibility for your sins, for sure. I mean, I don't want to take responsibility for my own. But if I do want to take responsibility for your sins, it's because I'm better than you and I need to show you how much better I am at this thing called life than you are and just embarrass the heck out of you. Because that's fun, right? It's always nice to to, to get, get one up on somebody who's already laying down uh, bloodied, and uh, face down in, in the gutter, right? Obviously, if you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, <laughs> there's no help. But anyway, um, we need to take responsibility for our own sins, and we need to take responsibility for how we interact with other people. And like you said, we need to gently interact with those who are down. Um, and I think that gentleness is an important Peace because um, I remember saying this multiple times in my own life and repeating it uh, to people in the context of confession that my thumb is on the go button 24 hours a day. Like imagine I'm sitting at the control panel at a nuclear facility and uh, my finger is above the go button to release a nuclear warhead. My finger is over the button of my life 24 hours a day and it don't take much to push a button. It really doesn't take much to push that button. Just a couple couple ounces of pressure and that button goes and the missile, missile goes too. And I use that as an analogy in my own mind and with other people that the balance between my life glorifying God and, main, and maintaining try, maintaining whatever divine reflection I have in it is the difference between me choosing him or me choosing myself. That's not always an addiction. No, certainly not. But if I push that button for me enough times, it sure could become an addiction. So I, I have to always remember that my life hangs in the balance of me pushing the button or not, and that I'm completely capable as a human being. I am entirely capable of doing anything. There is nothing I'm not capable of because other people have done it. That means I'm capable of it too. So be careful. Watch your step and watch the step of the guy standing next to you too. That's the real, that's the real, um, that's the real rub when we're looking at history is that you are just as likely to be the villain as anyone else. Um, you know, there was that, that famous psychology, sociology study back in the 70s where they, they took students and they made half of them prison guards and half of them prisoners. And, you know, within a remarkably short amount of time, they were all exhibiting the worst traits of both the stereotypes of both groups. None of them were actually prisoners. None of them were actually prison guards. But they, I think it, like if I remember correctly, I think it even had to be like abandoned. Like it was, go, it, it just, it turned so ugly and violent and nasty. And it was all made up. But it's, it, it's, it's whatever you see as the, the, the darkest core of, of human beings, um, any of us could end up there. Any of us could be like whatever you think the the whatever you think the the rock bottom is that anyone anyone can get there, anybody at any time. So let's be loving, let's let's be kind, let's give each other a a, a rescuing hand out of hell. Because taking heed to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Because let's face it, if you're really honest, you know. Your, your life can fall apart too. You know, maybe one person's rock bottom involves a substance. Another person's rock bottom may involve their marriage 
crumbling. Well, I mean, your life is falling apart. Does it really matter why? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, or, or I should really say is if your life's falling apart, the details are, are, are kind of secondary to like, let's help you out is what I mean to say. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, this person's life's a mess. Let's help them. There's not like an acceptable amount of chaos. There's not an acceptable amount of death. Um, you know, so it's like, you don't look at one person and say, well, they've got the right type of problem. They're having the right kind of crisis. Like, can you imagine triaging that? Looking at someone whose life is falling apart and who's looking to you as a Christian for help and saying, yeah, but you've got the wrong kind of crisis. We do yeah. that all the time, though. I mean, I see it really shouldn't the time, especially in like homeless and, um, and like high risk needs. I see it all the time. How how often do you see a hungry person on the side of the street and somebody won't give them a dime because it's like, I know what they're going to do with that money. I know that they're just going to buy drugs and alcohol with that money. How do you know that? You know nothing. And how in the world, by assuming that you know exactly what will be done with your money, which isn't your money to begin with, it's the Lord's money. Even even if you knew what they would do with the money, how does that fix your attitude toward their problem? How many times have people come to the door of a church and asked for assistance and been turned away because they weren't dressed correctly? They didn't have the right smell. Oh, we couldn't have possibly let them into the church. Did you see how they looked? Ah. No, we do it all the time. I see it too often. And it's disgusting to me, actually. It, it, it's repulsive. Rant over. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not that it's not that it doesn't happen, it's that it shouldn't happen. And one of the things that I one of the things that I'm grateful for about sort of this coming the 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 era in which we're living the church life is I think it's easier to have that conversation. Um because sort of the prim and proper, you know, this is the social acceptable place to be on Sunday morning, cultural Christianity days are ending, which is great because they weren't sincere. Um, and, and it's no longer the normal thing to do on Sunday. So it's, it's actually less normal to go to church than it is to just sleep in and have brunch and hit a yoga class. So what I think, I think you're, you're more likely to have people who are willing to have those hard conversations because they're, they're genuinely sincere and serious about what we're doing. But uh, I, I think to wrap up, though, I think the thing we need to look at is the fact that, one, whether you're talking about addiction to alcohol or drugs or pornography or your sin of choice, um, it's about isolation. That's what makes it deadly. So the solution is in community, the community of recovery on the one hand, the community of the church on the other, or in both cases. Um, and if you want to identify what that item is for yourself, if you don't already know, um, because maybe you don't, or you have some items in your life that, you know, maybe this conversation is causing you to take a harder look at, look at your, the real, the real canary in a coal mine is your response when someone interferes with it. When an addict has the object of their addiction interfered with, taken away, they get mad, they get violent, they get angry, they get frustrated, they get pouty. Like there, it's 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 a very irrational thing. Look how you react when the object of your addiction is taken, and that's how that's how you can see what it is. Just think about all the people who are total control freaks. Who, who, you know, might have a real genuine addiction to manipulation. Well, I mean, like, yeah, let someone else call the shots. Let, some, let someone else get in the way of their, their need to control and be right and, and uh, give the orders. Ooh, you, you suddenly so-and-so prim and proper becomes real ugly real fast. Why? You see, uh, that, that's, that, that's, your, that's your canary in a coal mine. Do you become angry and irrational when it's taken away. Um, and if you do, 
then you may have a problem. <laughs> and I guarantee you it'll make your life unmanageable. Uh, I mean, even if, you know, even if your quote unquote bathos, your quote unquote habit is like, say, office gossip. Uh, and, you know, someone tries to tell you, hey, man, you really need to uh, like it's 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 much lay, lay off. Well, who are you to tell me what to do? What do you know? You think you're so great. And, then, you know, suddenly, you know, we've taken someone who's trying to be a friend and we, we've attacked them now. But with further gossip. Right. Right. With with further slander. But I mean, but but look at that. Right. Like, I mean, like it's a real irrational thing to do. It's like, hold on. Why would we do that in to begin with? We, we're doing something that's harmful and someone tries to help us and we attack them. That's a real irrational thing. That's a sign you had a problem. And and the reality is, guess what? It'll make your life unmanageable. It, it's, if you, that, That's the other thing with addiction is everyone else around you knows there's a problem. You don't. Or you don't recognize it. You're in denial. But I mean, I guarantee you for that, you know, that office gossip, man, look, everyone hates working with you. Your professional life could be a whole lot easier. Your days could be a whole lot more pleasant. But instead, you you, you choose to be a, a highly um, toxic human being and create a terrible environment. Um, you know, normally when people get sober, one of the first things they have to come to terms with is they weren't fooling, you weren't fooling people half as well as you think you were. People knew. And, you know, they, they're probably, uh, you know, they're, they're glad that you're healthy now. But yeah, you've got to, you got to pick yourself up from the mud, and go back to the father's house and say, hey, I've sinned before heaven and before you. And that's, that's a powerful thing. So um, I guess, uh, I, I guess that, at least for me, that wraps up my thoughts for tonight. Do you, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I do. Uh, shortly, uh, succinctly, uh, you said something there at the end, which dovetails very nicely with what I've been thinking that, yes, I like the person who is trying to hide their sin or not even aware of their sin, that person who in your in in the story that you gave approaches and says, hey, man, your gossip, it, it's harmful. It's not good it may not always work. It may not always be you that needs to speak up, but if we're out on the battlefield, let's, let's bring it into this word picture. If we're standing out on a battlefield and I see you, Father Michael, walking straight towards a landmine, and I say to myself, self, he's a smart dude. He knows what he's doing or vice versa. He's a real jerk and I hate him. So I'm just going to ignore what he's doing over there. But in either context, either out of love or hate or indifference, I don't say, Mike, do you see, dude, do you see the landmine? Look down. If I don't take that responsibility to myself and make you aware of it, I've also failed and I've also sinned. Um, you're aware of this. I've done it to you where I've taken responsibility for having failed you in our relationship. I've done it with my wife, with my children, where I should have said something. I should have done something at a specific time. And I said, oh, he's got it. You didn't have it. Or you, when you've done it to me and I said, I've got it and I didn't have it and I tripped and fell. And it, was, and it wasn't because you didn't love me. It was because I wasn't willing to hear what you had to say. But if you hadn't said anything, I... You should have. And there's been times when I didn't say something and I should have. So we need to, to man up or woman up or person up in that case. And if we see somebody walking headlong into a trap, speak up and say, yo, you've got a problem. Can I help? Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's when I, when I talk to my, my teenagers about, you know, in the scripture, on the one hand, Christ says not to judge. On the other hand, he also says that when, uh, if your brother is caught in a trespass, uh, first go to him and tell him, uh, tell him the problem. And if he doesn't listen, you take two or three witnesses and tell him again. If he doesn't listen, bring it before the church. And if he doesn't listen, then cast him out. So, I mean, he does say go and confront the issue. 
but he also says not to judge. And when I ask the kids, I'm like, well, how do you balance that? And they don't know. And I tell them, well, here's, here's the trick. It's the difference is judging and condemning provides no solution, provides no help. You're just miring the person in the problem and scuttling them there. And that's it. Whereas what Christ is saying is like, no, let's work towards reconciliation. Let's face it and deal with it and solve it. And if we solve it, then we're reconciled and we're good. And then no pro- then it's not a problem anymore. Uh, so that's so so that's the thing. So it's we we need to look and say, you know, it, it's not being nosy and it's not being uh, meddling. It's it's taking responsibility for my teammate on the battlefield and saying, look, I want you to get to the other end of this safely. So let me help you. I'm here to be a help, not a, uh, a hindrance. And that's the difference. And that attitude is the difference. And um, it makes all the difference. So Thank you, Father Joseph. I greatly appreciated it in, uh, in this talk. I hope everyone enjoyed. We did enjoy. Uh, we did enjoy sharing it with you. Uh, please find us on social media on the Battlefield Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on the Battlefield Podcast on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else. Father, did I get them all? I think so. There's seven of them and I don't have them all memorized. Well, find us, like, share, subscribe, and please do send us your questions and comments so we can keep this a dialogue. God bless you all and may the Holy Spirit may the Holy Spirit bless and protect you always. I do, I just have to close with this. May may the Holy Trinity who exists in communion by the grace of the Holy Spirit and his church draw you into deeper communion with both him and those around you who are living life here on the battlefield. Mm-hmm.